This is a very unusual seminar for me to introduce because Mike is an alumnus of mine. So first of all, I want to, how many summer students do we have in the room? I know junior years. Put your hand up, junior. There's some summer students here. So Mike started as a summer student. He was an undergraduate Nebraska Wesleyan. He joined my lab as an undergraduate uh, about three or four years ago yeah. um, uh, in Nebraska. He joined, my, he joined our program in Nebraska, and he relocated with me to, to, to Dartmouth. And he then graduated here with a PhD from the then Department of Pharmacology. Um, while he was in my lab, he studied dead cells. Because at that point in time, nobody knew what they were. They're his most highly cited papers, unfortunately mine. They were eventually called apoptosis, and so Mike was one of the founders of apoptosis. So if you actually have questions about apoptosis, ask Mike. He probably knows more about it than I do. Um, he uh, uh, was offered a job, a postdoc position by Stan Korsmeyer, which he declined because he knew he knew more about apoptosis than Stan did. Um, but at that time in the department, we were trying to recruit a, a gene therapist, and we were failing to recruit a gene therapist. And so Mike said, well, why don't I go get a job in gene, train in gene therapy, and then maybe I can get a faculty post at Dartmouth. Well, he went down to Texas and, and did his postdoc with uh, Steve Johnson. Johnson. How quickly I forget. He went from, now he was in Texas, he went down to Baylor and got a tenure-track position in Baylor. He got tenure in Baylor, but he still left Texas. Uh, he went to the Mayo Clinic, where he's been now for the past dozen years or so, I guess. He's a tenure professor at Mayo, and he's still studying gene therapy, and those are the things he's going to talk to you about today. Um, but before he starts, I unfortunately have to do all these things like read the important bits, which says, Dr. Barry does have financial interest in the past 12 months. He's scientific advisory board to Gianna Biotechnologies. I have no idea what that is. He's a CEO and founder of Profusion Therapeutics. Alan Hartford's gone over his slides and has said, everything's okay, there's no conflict of interest. Uh, anybody here wants CME credits? I think you probably know the, the, the game. There's a, a code outside that you can get for the CME credits afterwards. If I haven't missed anything, Mike, thanks for coming to visit. Thanks, Alan. Uh, turn up the design. Yeah, so thank you uh, for coming here and sharing your lunch with me. The, uh, like Alan said, this is an interesting thing. I left Dartmouth in 1992, so uh, some of you poor students, this may be your fate. You'll get old, and uh, <laughs> but your boss won't age at all, so <laughs> tragedy. Uh, so, uh, and so as I go through this, Feel free to stop me. I'm going to talk about kind of, uh, it's mostly about kind of some virology and maybe using viruses as therapeutics. Um, so it's quite different than kind of the stuff I used to do with Alan and uh, other sorts of things. And, um, and so what I'm going to try to do is give you a little bit of background about a certain type of uh, virus called adenovirus and then how we're trying to use it for cancer. My lab 
does kind of a variety of things. We do some gene therapy stuff. We do cancer, and we also do some um, vaccination uh, type of work. But the overriding sort of my interest, the intellectual pursuit, is that I'm interested in can you actually target things in the body? Can you do therapies in vivo? Um, but also, how do you deal with the immune system as you're trying to do these things? And, um, and so that's kind of the overarching stuff we work on. Um, and Alan already mentioned the disclosures. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to tell you first a little bit about a, a set of viruses that we work on that are called adenoviruses. And I'll talk about trying to now take those and use them to do something useful as oncolytics. So oncolytic basically means cancer killer. Um, so how do you get them to not go kill the things you don't want to kill, like the liver? Um, how do you retarget them to hit the cancer cells you might want? And then at the very end, I'll talk a little bit about uh, trying to use these as a platform for doing immunotherapy, and this kind of ties into some of our other vaccine-type uh, work that we also use these same viruses for. And uh, you'll see the ads... So adenoviruses, our abbreviation for adenoviruses is ad, so I'll probably interchangeably use that. So uh, at Mayo Clinic, there's a bunch of people uh, trying to use viruses to kill cancer, and that's true kind of now worldwide. Our, the virus I'll be talking about is uh, adenovirus, which is uh, over here. It's a DNA virus. And in the cartoon realm, this is a virus that people think of as an icosahedral 20-sided virus, and it has these unique fiber structures uh, sticking out of it. And so this is how it looks like in uh, cartoons. But in reality, if you do things like cryo-electron microscopy, it is kind of icosahedral, but it basically looks like a gigantic uh, wad of Velcro. Um, and it's actually a lot of the lessons learned about this virus in a dish you know, about how does it infect cells and whatnot, or you kind of have to throw some of those rules out the door when you try to go into the body because this Velcro basically will glom on a bunch of stuff out of the blood like uh, clotting factors, complement, natural antibodies, and so the virus actually behaves quite differently in vivo than in vitro um, and in terms of killing things like cancer cells as well. So this virus uh, is sort of like evolution's uh, solution to nanotech. So this guy self-assembles in a very specific way. The, the virions all have the same exact number of uh, proteins in it, and uh, it packages DNA quite efficiently. So we're basically stealing evolution's technology to try to do something kind of therapeutic. And so most of the virus is made up of a protein called hexon, and this is the guy that makes up most of the Velcro on this virus. There's also a protein called Penton, which I'll talk about a little bit before uh, later. And then the structure that sticks out is called the fiber protein. And, uh, and so this is a, a non-envelope virus. It's all protein and DNA. And its genome is double-stranded DNA, and it's a pretty big uh, genome for a virus. It's about 36,000 base pairs of sequence. And like most DNA viruses, when they land inside the cell, they have to go to the nucleus because their technology is DNA-based. And so they have these early genes that turn on, and the virus is basically taking over the host cell. And because it's a DNA virus, it wants to replicate its own DNA genome. It basically wants to push the host cell into S phase. And so some of these proteins are involved in doing that. 
And the rest of these early genes are involved in actually just replicating the viral DNA. So these guys turn on first, and then the late genes are expressed later, and they're basically mostly involved with encapsidating the genome that the virus made. And a, a pivotal master regulator for this virus is, uh, are proteins that are encoded by E1, the E1 region of the virus. So, you know, a lot of times when people talk about adenovirus, they speak of it as if it's one virus. It's actually a very uh, diverse set of viruses. So this is a phylogenetic tree of human adenoviruses. And so the one that virtually has gone into virtually every human being is one called AD serotype 5 or AD5. And this guy uh, sits over here, but there's actually about 60 of these human adenoviruses. And if you go from one end of the virome to the other end of the virome, there's up to 40% genetic diversity. So this is actually a, a very different set of viruses. They cause different diseases. Some cause respiratory infections. Some cause pink eye. Others are gastrointestinal. And part of that difference in terms of the genetics and their uh, phenotype is actually based on what receptors they use and how they activate in different cells. So this is really... Uh, so some of these guys bind to a receptor called the coxaxian adenovirus receptor. Some bind to things like CD46 or desmoglein or other receptors, and then uh, different viruses down here may use sialic acid and other receptors. So they evolve kind of different to infect different sorts of tissues. And so these are, for us, trying to do things like do cancer therapy with a virus. They're, this is kind of like a palette of already just off-the-shelf technologies that might actually be good at killing different cancers. It actually ends up that that's kind of true. If you go in and you dig in on these different viruses, you find that these guys are actually pretty good at killing prostate cancer, but are terrible at killing B-cell cancers, whereas these guys are really good at killing B-cell cancers but can't really touch anything else. So natural evolution's already kind of pre-tuned some of these to kill different cancer cells. So if we look back at the proteins here, the fiber protein is important for the virus because it's actually the, the, the high affinity ligand for a cellular receptor. And this is a blow-up of the cryo-EM of that protein. And so this, is, this trimeric protein is docked into a pentameric penton base. And the fiber is made up of these repeats, and different adenoviruses have different numbers of repeats and different flexibilities of these uh, fiber proteins. And the knob domain at the top is actually what mediates receptor binding. And, and this is what mostly determines the different receptor targeting by these types of viruses. The secondary interaction occurs with a RGD motif on the penton base, which engages alpha V integrins. And so generally, particularly in a tissue culture dish, the way these viruses work is that they will find their high affinity receptor, like the coxaxian adenovirus receptor, bind it with nanomolar affinity, and then uh, the fibers tend to be pretty flexible, so the virus basically will do sort of a, a downward dog motion and to engage the RGD motif on the penton base. It's actually this, this combined interaction that helps the virus bind and uh, enter into cells. And again, you could be hitting different receptors uh, naturally in terms of the natural tropism of that adenovirus virome. 
And one of the things we do in my lab uh, is to try to go in and re-engineer these proteins to retarget to new receptors. Like, you, ideally, it'd be nice to say, oh, I want to kill B-cell cancers. I'm going to design a specific virus that will only infect B-cell uh, cancers. And I'll talk about one example of doing this for ovarian cancer, uh, but this is kind of the, the blue sky, wouldn't that be cool if this would work kind of stuff that uh, we, we try to do. Um, and we, were keep, we keep working on it. So once the virus engages a, the uh, cell surface, it uh, activates receptor-mediated endocytosis, and um, it's kind of like a, a, you know, the old Saturn V rockets or the newer ones they're building, where once you've used a certain stage of the, the structure, you no longer need it, so you discard it. So for this virus, it used its fiber and its penton base to bind and get into the cell, once it gets into the endosome, the endosome uh, acidifies, and then that actually triggers the virus to eject those proteins from it. And underneath them is a, another protein called protein 6 that, when it's exposed to acid, will actually uh, pop the endosome membrane. And the virus then gets into the cytoplasm, uh, binds microtubules with that hexon uh, Velcro, and then gets transported to the nuclear pore where it then ejects its uh, DNA payload into the nucleus. And so this can happen within as little as 30 minutes of binding to the uh, cell surface. So once the DNA is in the nucleus, then the virus turns on its program. And so that program starts with those early genes, the pivotal E1 that I mentioned, so this guy gets turned on because it has this promiscuous promoter that has the uh, transcription binding sites, transcription factor binding sites that most cells have. So most cells have the transcription factors for this. So once that opens up its genome, uh, the factors bind upstream of it and turn that gene on. And then it uh, transactivates the other early genes. And then uh, later, the late genes get expressed. And, and so... These, that's sort of how the virus turns on uh, transcriptionally. And the extra functions, which I don't really have time to talk about, but are kind of cool things to probably talk to Alan about, are that the E1 proteins are actually evolved to do a variety of things. They actually neutralize a lot of things like P53 and RB protein, um, but they also jumpstart cells into S phase so the virus can use all the DNA synthetic materials machinery to make its own genome. And then it also uh, has, uh, and particularly the E1B proteins, involved in actually actively blocking apoptosis. Then there's another set of genes called E3 that there's about six genes. So these proteins are evolved to hide the virus from the immune system. And part of that hiding is actually to block TNF-mediated killing of the infected cell and also to block uh, at least one of the intrinsic pathways. So these are all kind of engineered by evolution, that, and we can kind of tap some of those things to try to uh, uh, do some cancer therapy applications. So once we're back uh, to the DNA getting in the nucleus, the virus starts the early genes, and then it replicates its DNA. So if you, say, infect a prostate cancer cell, the virus will take that one piece of DNA and it will amplify it 100,000-fold within that cell. And so this is, I think, in terms of 
doing cancer therapy, this has some opportunities because, you know, if you put your favorite transgene or your favorite anti-microRNA or whatever your you know, sort of gene therapy application, if you put that into that virus, the virus is now going to amplify your, your favorite gene just as much of its own, as its own genes. So this has, gives us opportunity to do things like cancer gene therapy or cancer vaccines. Also, at the same time, all that DNA is, is great, are great uh, drivers for things like toll-like receptors, and, and so the DNA itself can act as an adjuvant for immune responses. And so you get the DNA, and then you package the viruses, and actually you make so much virus that if you do an electron micrograph of the nucleus here, this is actually, you can see these basic, almost like crystalline arrays of virions packed into the nucleus of the cell. And so from this, usually one virus will make you about 10,000 new viruses. And so that has some potential utility in terms of using it to kill cancer cells. And so another side effect, though, is that you, for every one virion you make, you make about 100 times as much protein to make viruses, so you make massive amounts of viral antigens that may also act as adjuvants for immune therapy. <laughs> so finally, the end game is this virus kills cells, and so the virus, uh, you know, this may also be a, another opportunity to actually release cancer antigens from the, the tumor cell uh, to potentially reactivate or activate new immune responses sort of with the extra secret sauce of having all these viral ad adjuvants uh, included in the, the whole gamish of uh, immune stimulus. And so, and at the end, end of this, then the virus will spread. And so, you know, the, the original um, sales pitch for using viruses to kill cancer cells is that these are kind of unique because they're actually a drug that will make more of itself. So, like I said, if one virus makes 10,000 new viruses, then theoretically 10,000 would make, you know, more and more viruses. Of course, at the same time, the immune system is also amplifying to uh, squeeze down that response. And so, generally, like when we're thinking of using these viruses as oncolytics, where all the efficacy is due to the virus killing the cells, you know, you like the idea of amplification and don't like the idea of the immune system messing you up. But actually, as these things have been deployed in humans, a lot of the efficacy is maybe not only due to the virus killing stuff, but it's actually due to the bystander immune responses that the virus evokes against the cancer. So the original intent, may we may have gotten lucky that the immune system actually does amplify in response to these um, and so, and, you know, as Alan said, the, I was a farm student. I wasn't a very good one, but, uh, well, the, uh, anyway, as I'm going to talk about this, you know, it's kind of as an educational thing, but also as, you know, we do kind of do pharmacology, as Alan has pointed out to me, but in this case, it's not one of these wimpy little, you know, 50, uh, 500 Dalton, drugs, this, these are some big drugs. These are 150 megadaltons, so they behave a little bit differently, as you might imagine, in the body. So, so this is an example of using an adenovirus as a systemic therapeutic uh, to treat tumors. So what I've always wanted is, well, 
you know, if we're going to go in and use these, we've got to go find the distant metastatic sites or disseminated cancers. And so most of the time we try to take the viruses and inject them into the bloodstream and see if they'll go find the tumors in the animal models. Um, and so this is an example of that where, uh, so these are uh, nude mice that are bearing uh, LINCAP prostate tumors subcutaneous on the, their subcutaneous side. So we're going in with an adenovirus that's expressing luciferase with a single intravenous treatment. And so then we're tracking where does the virus go? Um, and so if you look at this, these animals after three days, you see tumors over here. At day three, where we're lighting up the animal with luciferase is actually not in the tumor, but it's actually in the liver. And I'll come back to that. And, but if you keep following these guys, you see that the, the virus has found these tumors on their flanks. And if you keep following them, basically the, the viruses will take off in the tumors. And for this model, this is the best case scenario where this one treatment will actually cure these animals. Um, we'll keep these guys, we kept these guys about a year and a half, and the tumors never grew. Uh, they just had a little bump where the tumor used to be. So this is the best case scenario. Most of the time it doesn't work this well. Um, but it is a good demonstration of that you can inject these and they can go f hunt down tumors and kill them, but you've got a little bit of a, a side, uh, side effect problem here. Because if that's using sort of the Goldilocks dose of you treat them, it cures them, but if you go tenfold higher a dose of the virus and give it the same way and do survival, you can see that uh, within about two days, everybody has to be euthanized because you've basically wrecked their, their liver because the virus likes to infect the, the hepatocytes of the liver. So this is obviously a big therapeutic problem. Um, and if you go in and you count virus genomes and, you know, in terms of your whole injection, it ends up that all of this super virus that you've injected, 98% of it actually didn't go where you wanted it. It went actually and got lost in the liver. So this, uh, you know, we fantasize about targeting stuff and whatnot, but if, you know, if the vast majority of your drug actually gets lost to the wrong tissue and can kill it, that's a big problem, and, and so we've actually spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to detarget this big uh, sink for uh, this virus. It actually ends up if you take nanotech, anything particulate, other viruses, the vast majority of them get cleaned up out of the blood by the reticulate endothelial system. So this problem is not really specific to these adenoviruses, but it's basically particles uh, get eaten in the liver. And so one approach that people have uh, kind of championed in the, the, the weird oncolytic virus uh, realm is to make something called a CRAD, which is known as a conditionally replicating adenovirus. So this comes back to that, uh, that E1 master regulator. So this guy, as I said, has a really promiscuous promoter. So if it goes into cells, most cells have the right transcription factors to turn it on. So one way to do this to make a cancer-specific CRAD is to take away the promiscuous promoter and give it something that's more specific or tissue-specific, cancer-specific. So one example for, say, prostate cancer would be to use a probation promoter to drive this. 
So the idea is if this virus lands in the hepatocyte, it can't turn on because the hepatocyte doesn't have the right transcription factors to activate the promoter. Whereas if it goes into a prostate cancer, it will actually be able to activate. So another approach taps into some of the, the functionalities of the E1A protein. And so this protein, I said, neutralizes things, some tumor suppressor proteins like RB. Um, and, and so you can go in and you can mutate this protein so that the virus can no longer inactivate it. So if it goes in, so it can no longer inactivate things like RB or P300. So this, if you make these mutations and the virus goes into a normal cell, that cell has these proteins, the virus can't counteract them, so it stops. It can't move forward in its life cycle. But if it goes into a cancer cell that lacks these tumor suppressors, the, that cancer cell can't shut off the virus, and the virus can go to town and kill the cell. And so if you go in and you compare these, and these are DU145 uh, human prostate tumors and nude mice, compare these two types of CRADs, you see, um, so you inject them a single time intravenously, and then you follow tumor growth over time. See, in PBS-treated animals, the tumors grow, uh, grow over time. If you use that probasin CRAD that has this uh, prostate-specific promoter, you see that it doesn't really do very much better. But if you use this E1-mutated virus down here, it's actually as good as the wild-type virus at controlling these tumors. And so that uh, sounds good, and it looks very specific, um, but the problem is that you've, you know, you're controlling the virus turning on, but all that virus is still going into the liver. Um, you know, so even if it doesn't turn on, it's, that's not without consequences. And so you can kind of see this uh, in terms of tracking. Oops. Now, now you guys can really go to sleep. Um, so I was interested in could we actually track all the viruses, not just the su successful ones. And so what we did was we took our, our favorite adenovirus and we labeled it with a near-infrared fluorophore uh, on the virion surface, and then we in would inject into mice and image them. And so this is actually a movie of doing that in mice. And so this is a mouse that... As is sitting there anesthetized, and this uh, string here is actually a catheter that's going into its jugular vein. So in this catheter, you see white, and that's actually a whole uh, highway full of uh, fluorescently labeled viruses waiting to go into the mouse. And so uh, this is near-infrared imaging, and so you uh, this halo is actually an artifact of the filter that we're using to image these guys. But if you go in, so the cool thing about near-infrared imaging is that it's so sensitive, you can image like a take a 100-millisecond shot. And so this is a, actually a 20-minute movie of after the injection of the virus, and it's actually a, kind of a waste of time because we didn't need to image them anywhere near 20 minutes. But I'll start this, but things go so fast that I'll, I'll have to show you this in a little bit different way. But so if I start the film... See the animal's color kind of changes and things happen. Now, if we go to just looking at the individual frame shots, this is at time zero. So this is an animal who has autofluorescence in its gut because chlorophyll that it ate autofluorescence. So, but so if we come up here 
and so this is time in seconds after we we do the push as we're filming so within a half a second you start to see a virus in the actual jugular then seven seconds the virus is in the heart and then uh, then within about four seconds of that the actual animal now blushes this fluorescent virus going out to its uh, periphery and if you actually you know, you guys probably can't see it very well, but you can actually see in its femoral vein the actual virus shooting down through the uh, vasculature there. And then if you look at 750 seconds, you see that the massive amount of the virus is now in the liver. And so the striking thing was just how fast everything happened, because normally we would, like, do luciferous imaging, like, a day later. Well, that was way after all the pharmacologic action had occurred. So, and you can actually do kind of quantify this type of stuff uh, by measuring the fluorescence intensity and looking at the kinetics. And so this red line is basically accumulation of the virus in the liver over time. And the time frame here is 800 seconds. But, you know, if you blow this up, actually, you know, things, game's over in about 100 seconds in terms of the pharmacology of this big 150 megadalton uh, so-called drug. So the liver is a huge sink you know, for our virus. And so, you know, kind of, you know, the cerebral uh, version of this for me is, you know, if our virus is like a salmon, the liver is like, a, you know, your traditional Kodiak bear. And so typically whenever we make our really cool targeted vector, the vast majority of what we just made and spent years making actually gets eaten by the liver. So we might do all these cool things to the virus, but it's still all going to get eaten. So, so the, the detargeting the liver is a big sort of drive for us. So, you know, why does our virus and most things, part, particles, go to the liver? Well, for one reason is the liver is designed to filter stuff out. So there's massive blood flow into the uh, lobule of the liver. And the other thing is that the liver has these things called fenestrations, these little windows into the parenchyma of the liver. And it so happens these holes through the endothelium are big enough to allow our virus to get through. <coughs> so that's really the big uh, you know, driver for getting stuff like viruses into the parenchyma of the liver. And so as we sort of imagined this originally, it was like the virus would come in and it would come in, and if we could image it, it was probably transducing hepatocytes. So it would come into the sinusoids, the blood supply of the liver, and then go in through the fenestrations and infect the liver. And if we infected too much of it, we might actually destroy the liver. Um, you know, and so this is where, oh, my conditionally replicating adenovirus, that will protect all these poor hepatocytes from the virus. You know, the problem is that the, you know, that's... As I said, the, you know, the virus is still in all these hepatocytes, and, you know, your immune system isn't stupid. It's designed to detect you've been infected with something. So, so if you actually look at liver damage in animals after you inject them with the viruses, uh, so if you look at liver damage in terms of release of uh, ALT from hepatocytes, at day three, which is a time where you basically see the direct killing effects of the virus, you, you can see both of these viruses are actually killing quite a, quite a bit of the hepatocytes. But the kicker is that if you look 
14 days later when the T cells, the immune cells have detected that things are awry and they're actually responding, they're actually going in and killing way more hepatocytes than we actually killed with the virus in the first place. So the CRAD solution is probably not really a good one. Uh, you know, the, and so another reality check is that the liver is not just made up of hepatocytes, and it's not a gigantic bag of uh, hepatocytes. It's actually uh, got a lot of other cells in there. And so some of them, which have ended up being a big problem, are actually uh, the resident macrophages of the, the liver called Kupfer cells. And then there are others called liver sinusoidal endothelial cells, or LSECs, that <clears throat> line this uh, vascular space. And it's these guys actually see the virus way before anybody can get to the hepatocytes. And so actually what happens is when the virus comes into the, to the liver, it actually is absorbed by the Kupfer cells first. They probably eat 95% of the virus themselves. And they do this because they can phagocytose these particles, and they actually do it, do it in part by detecting them with scavenger receptors um, also complement deposition and things called natural antibodies, which are actually a pretty potent way to neutralize viruses uh, without any prior immunity. So these Kupfer cells, you know, kill the virus, but the virus actually kills them too. So within 10 minutes of absorbing a bunch of an adenovirus dose, these guys are actually start to fall apart. The fragments then are released from the, the vasculature and they go to the lung and where they can lodge and cause secondary side effects. And so Kupfer cells are the first problem. You come in, uh, you get, they may get rid of. The LSECs will then absorb whoever escaped the Kupfer cells and they do it a little bit differently by pinocytosis. And then only those guys that escape can get to the hepatocytes. So if we see a rampant infection of the liver with luciferase, it's coming from these uh, hepatocytes. So we've already been absorbed by L uh, Kupfer cells, already been absorbed by LSECs, and now we're being absorbed by hepatocytes. So this is not a bad, you know, hitting these hepatocytes is not bad if you're trying to treat liver cancer, but if you're trying to treat any other distant cancer, the whole liver, all these cells are something we would like to stay away from. So one approach is kind of crude, uh, sort of particulate uh, pharmacology is something you can do called pre-dosing. And so this is basically, uh, you're basically, instead of giving all your virus in one bolus, you give it in two doses. Give one dose, uh, which is the pre-dose, and then four hours later you give your therapeutic virus. And so and, and the idea is basically that your first dose goes in there, it absorbs, is absorbed by the Kupfer cells and the LSECs, and then they get saturated or killed and go away so that when you give your second dose, you can now get a lot more into your target tissue. So this is, if you look at an adenovirus expressing luciferase, you can see a decent level of liver uh, transduction, um, under normal circumstances, but if you pre-dose them first, you can get something like 40 to 100-fold higher infection in the hepatocytes by getting rid of those problematic cells beforehand. So again, this is great if you're trying to do liver gene therapy or maybe liver cancer, but if you're trying to hit something else, you've now exacerbated your side effect by getting rid of those Kupfer cells. So 
so those are, you know, the frontline defense of the, you know, something you probably promptly forgot in immunology, which is the reticuloendothelial system. That's it. That's it working. Um, so once you get past the Kupfer cells and the LSEX, um, the hepatocytes are still a big problem. And so, so then this comes back to the Velcro thing. So in a dish, this guy's awesome. He binds very specifically to his receptors and infects in a proper uh, English fashion. Um, but you put him in the blood, and he behaves more like uh, a hooligan at a soccer match, I guess. Uh, so interestingly, this is a respiratory virus. You put it in the bloodstream, and actually what happens is that vitamin K-dependent blood clotting factors will actually glom onto the Velcro with very high sub-nanomolar affinity, and this actually retargets the virus to hepatocytes. And, and if you do cryo-electron microscopy, these little red dots are actually uh, factor 10 docked on top of the hexon proteins of the virus. So one approach you can take to get, uh, get around that is actually try to detarget the virus by genetic engineering uh, to try to keep it out of hepatocytes. And so basically... Uh, what we did was we took the hexon and we capped it with a kind of a big protein domain called a biotin acceptor peptide on its surface to generate a virus in which we basically gummed up the Velcro on the surface. And so the uh, demonstration of what that can do for you, so this is day one after an IV injection of a luciferase virus. So these are viruses that got an adenovirus with pre-dosing. So you can see this anim these animals are screaming hot with luciferase in their livers. Um, but if we use this genetically modified virus with the, a hexon modification, you can see that we've pretty much nearly eliminated the hepatocyte infection, and now the virus is actually able to get to the tumor and actually uh, sort of begin the therapeutic effect. If you look at day three, it's even worse, you know. So these guys all have to be euthanized. These guys uh, get a pretty good uh, therapeutic dose from the virus in, in the tumor. So this is just an example of uh, detargeting, but, uh, you know, so we seem to retain most of the efficacy and gain in the safety margin. So this was what happens if you take the wild-type virus with a high dose in the animals. We have to sacrifice them within two days of an injection if we take that detargeted virus, we actually don't cause any hepatitis, and we're actually able to increase the therapeutic window pretty good with the, the systemically administered virus. So that's a detargeting. Um, just briefly, a little bit about retargeting. So the, you know, the viruses were built by evolution. They have a certain tropism, and it ends up that cancers, like ovarian cancer, doesn't express the actual receptors for that adenovirus serotype 5. They don't, don't express the CAR receptor. So if you go in in a, a mouse model of uh, scope 3 tumors in the peritoneum and you try to use the adenovirus by peritoneal injection to treat these guys uh, and look at luciferase act activity in the animal that's been opened up, you see very little infection of these tumor cells because the virus is mismatched for the receptor it can target and the receptors that are present on the scope 3 tumors. But you can go in and re-engineer these guys, and so we were able to take the virus and retarget it with uh, 
single-chain antibodies against epidermal growth factor receptor and uh, HER2. And so if you take these viruses and you now retarget them, in this case with epidermal growth factor uh, receptor single-chain, you now see you're lighting up a lot more of these intraperitoneal tumors. And if you use HER2 instead, you actually can also uh, do a pretty good job at now increasing the ability of the virus to infect cells. Now, that's hard to quantify in a subcutaneous or a peritoneal model uh, in terms of tumor growth and whatnot. So uh, you, we did a subsequent study with uh, scov 3 tumors that are subcutaneous. In this case, we're injecting the virus into the tumor. And so this is just the readout from that where you've got the PBS animals, the tumor's growing fast. We have to begin sacrificing them within two weeks. If we take the untargeted adenovirus, it does okay, but the tumors still grow in over about 28 days. But if we, in this case, take the uh, anti-epidermal growth factor receptor-targeted adenovirus, the therapy is actually uh, markedly better in terms of now giving it a receptor the virus can actually hit. So it's just one example, and you know this is this, a solution for adenovirus. There's actually great work at Mayo by other groups using things like measles virus and other viruses to retarget them, um, and so that has some uh, potential for different cancers. So, so that's kind of adenovirus, some of the pharmacology of it. Maybe, maybe you learned something. Maybe you didn't. Um, the, and so how you might adapt them and a few examples of using them for cancer. So most of the time we're doing these in immunodeficient animals because we want to see will they kill human uh, tumors. Um, and so, and they will work in immunocompetent models, but um, there are some complexities to testing these. But as we've been doing stuff with in other realms like gene therapy or vaccines, in those situations, we're dropping a bunch of different genes into the virus to have it expressed and amplified. And so, you know, all these studies I just showed you, these are all immunodeficient mice. They don't have the luxury of an immune response. So we don't really know is the immune system able to help in terms of uh, tumor kill. And so, you know, so the last stuff I'm going to show you is just using these guys in immunocompetent models. And um, actually, not just the virus, but actually taking advantage of the ability of the virus to amplify genes and to actually deliver genes that may amp up uh, immune responses against the cancer. And so I'll just give a couple of examples. We, you know, There's a lot of stuff in the literature in cancer gene therapy about using cytokine genes and now immune checkpoint antibodies and whatnot, and we're, we're dropping a variety of these, these into the viruses. <clears throat> so one example I'll talk about is 41BB ligand, and so this guy binds to 41BB on cells, and it's kind of unique because it, it will actually activate a, a variety of different immune cells. So this is a potentially, you know, potent uh, uh, immunostimulatory molecule, and 41BB is one of the immune checkpoints that people are now using monoclonal antibodies against. So, you know, to test this in the context of our adenoviruses, basically we could... Uh, just take this stimulator and uh, drop it into the virus to carry. Um, and so um, if you take that virus and you inject it into uh, just normal mice and look at their spleens after seven days, you can see a pretty whopping effect. So this is a PBS spleen, 
This is a, a control adenovirus spleen, basically the same size, but if you inject these animals with 4-1-BV ligand, you can actually see that we've blown up, we've massively stimulated the immune system in these guys. <clears throat> if you take the draining lymph nodes and look for activated CD8 uh, T cells, uh, this is a log, uh, a log scale, so you look at PBS and uh, control virus here, you have some level of these T cells in the lymph nodes, but you get about a log and a half amplification of the T cells in the draining lymph nodes. And again, in the spleen, you get a similar sort of bump in terms of an immune activation against, uh, by, by this virus just expressing this little protein. You can also use other things like granulocyte macrophage stimul colony stimulating factor. And so this is actually the the cytokine that are in most of the viral therapies that you hear about uh, clinically, like TVEC. These guys carry around GMCSF because it's a pretty good uh, immunostimulatory protein. And generally, the GMCSF is thought to uh, sort of help activate uh, things like dendritic cells to help prime immune responses against the tumors. I'm oversimplifying that. <clears throat> um, so likewise, you could take and drop GMCSF into the virus. And so if you, and we've done this in melanoma and a few different models, but so this is a, just an example of taking adenoviruses. So these are mice, BALB-C mice that are immunocompetent that we've given a subcutaneous A20 B-cell lymphoma. Um, and so we go in and um, inject these animals a single time with the virus intratumorally and then look at tumor growth over time after that injection. So you see that in PBS animals, the tumors grow really fast. In this model, the oncolytic virus is actually not doing much by itself, so these tumors grow nearly as fast. But if we have 4-1-BB ligand, we can slow down the tumor growth to some degree, and the GMCSF in, in this model is actually a little bit better. So, so that was interesting, and um, you know, but what was actually what was more interesting was of these animals, we cured a variety of them of their tumors. So if you took these animals and rechallenged them with the new A20 uh, B cell uh, subcutaneously and looked at the tumor growth with the second challenge, you could see the naive animals uh, who were only previously with, treated with PBS, you see the tumors grow fast like we saw, but in this case, the GMCSF virus that did a, a better job of controlling the tumors in the first case. Actually, these guys aren't really very immune to these for the recall response against the tumors. But the 4-1-BB ligand uh, uh, treated animals are actually uh, controlling the tumors much better than the other groups. So this looks kind of promising, and the kind of neat thing about kind of arming the viruses with these cytokine genes is that these genes are really small. So our virus is 36,000 bases of sequence, and we can probably stuff about six to 7,000 bases of exogenous sequence, depending on what else we delete. And so right now what we're doing is we're thinking about, well, can we actually tile these genes in more than one gene into the virus, and which would make sense or which might antagonize each other? So the idea would be maybe we have a virus with GMCSF, and would that be a good thing to have 4-1-BB ligand with it or OX40 ligand or another one or uh, PD-1 decoys? Um, and so 
but we can probably fit four to six of these teeny tiny genes into the virus at a time. Um, but probably in some cases, if you put the wrong ones in at the same time, we'll probably shoot ourselves in the foot. So we may want to do sort of a, a prime boost kind of thing where we go in and we tickle the immune system maybe with GMCSF and then we come back and try to amp up the T cells with a different sort of cytokine. And so, um, so I think that's about where I'll close in terms of using these, but you know, this is harnessing the ability of the virus to amplify those genes in addition to its ability to chew up the tumor, maybe expose some of the antigens, uh, the cancer antigens. And um, I'll just note that you know, this A20 model, in another study, you know, people work on cancer vaccines where they go in and find a specific antigen that that cancer has and vaccinate against it. In a parallel study, we actually did these with and without the A20. So A20 is a B-cell lymphoma, so it has a, a specific immunoglobulin antigen uh, uh, a binding site. So that represents a tumor antigen. So we actually went in then the study and co-infected with that tumor antigen at the same time. It had no benefit. So in this case, we seem to be kind of liberating the cancer antigens and at least in this artificial kind of uh, mouse model. So it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, we can tile the, the cytokines. We could also be putting tumor antigens in here. Uh, it may be different tumors will have ben different benefits in terms of expressing known tumor antigens uh, than what we saw with the A20, but we have a little bit of space to stuff some other things like those or microRNA targets and uh, whatnot. So uh, hopefully maybe you learned a little bit about adenoviruses and maybe uh, some uh, potential uses of viruses as cancer therapies. I should say, I'm not trying to say this is an end-all, be-all panacea. Uh, these are one tool of many in the cancer uh, therapeutic sort of thing. So how to combine these uh, rationally with other types of agents like chemotherapeutics or whatnot can you actually use the ability of the virus to push cells into S phase? Could you use that in combination with some of the checkpoint inhibitors? Um, you know, that could be interesting stuff to look at. Um, but adenoviruses as a family seem to be pretty potent. Uh, different adenoviruses have different potency naturally against different types of cancer cells. Um, in patients, they may have some activity as oncolytics by the virtue of their ability to kill cancer cells directly, but probably they're actually better by reactivating immune responses against the cancer. So they may mostly act as adjuvants in humans. Um, I showed a little bit that you can retarget these guys to different cancers and you can detarget them. And probably if I had to pick one thing to do, it would probably be detargeting just because you, know, you can't lose 98% of your dose to the liver uh, and expect to do anything good. Um, and so finally, like I already said, these are not a panacea and I think will become one of the tools in the toolbox for cancer therapy. So uh, a variety of people in the lab worked on this over the years, um, I, mostly Tian Nguyen, Chris Chen, um, and I have collaborators who worked in prostate cancer like John Morris and uh, and uh, we've had some funding from different groups. 
Um, so I'll stop and take any questions if you have any. Thank you. I do have a question about Fenestran. <laughs> Thank you for a nice talk. So, what's the determinant that actually allows these viruses to get to the um, prostate cancer, to the prostate? I think in a lot of cases, the uh, it's probably the disaggregated vasculature in the tumor. So, like if you take nanoparticles in some some tumors in models. Um, just nanoparticles that have no ligands or anything, they can accumulate in the tumors just by uh, sort of that disaggregated tumor vasculature. Um, actually, I think I may have put it. One sort of thing that goes on that uh, is, I didn't have time to show, but you know, we've actually compared doing intratumoral to intravenous therapy. And the intravenous, surprisingly, works better even though you're losing most of your dose to the liver. And some of that may actually be because you're, in addition to killing the tumor, you're also killing the tumor vasculature. So this is sort of uh, data which uh, kind of shows that. So these are <clears throat> sections from, uh, these are hepatocellular carcinomas in nude mice. And so on the right is staining of uh, vasculature using anti-CD31 in the tumor. So you don't treat them. You see tumor vasculature here. You give them a, a one IV dose of irregular adenovirus. You see some loss of the tumor vasculature. But if you do that thing with liver detargeting, you actually, at least in this uh, case, you uh, knock out quite a bit of the tumor vasculature. So it could be a little bit of that going on too, um, which is kind of like a, a catch-22 because, you sit, and actually it's probably why a lot of times we make these awesome cancer-targeting viruses. They work great in the dish, and then when you put them in the blood supply, they don't work. Well, you know, the problem being if you targeted the tumor, that's not what's out in the vasculature. So, you know, a lot of these uh, probably actually have to kind of target the tumor vasculature and then get in. Um, the virus's RGD motif binds alpha V integrin, so it may actually kind of be doing some of that in the vasculature first. But did that answer your question? Yeah. Thank you. Um, where, so after the viruses have gotten rid of the tumor, where do they go? Uh, well, they get eaten up by the immune system eventually. Uh, to some degree, there's kind of an interesting thing with the adenoviruses is that uh, we took you to the ER and we took a, a gut biopsy of you and looked in your CD4 cells. You would actually be harboring, harboring a number of different adenoviruses in your T cells. So there is some evidence naturally, but also therapeutically, that the viruses can go latent in things like T cells. And so some of the survivors may persist a little bit. And, uh, but uh, generally they'll, you know, those cells that get infected, if there are T cells, uh, CD8 cells, they will eventually find those cells and kill them. And that's kind of what I was showing with the liver enzyme thing of 14 days after that injection, the immune system went in and wiped out all those infected cells. What do you mean to kill the virus? 
Well, so this virus is not tremendously stable at uh, 37 degrees anyway. So, um, but it, yeah, I think basically it's a T cell response destroying its host cell. And so that's why the virus has evolved the E3 proteins that I talked about. The virus has like three different ways of, it'll grab class one and prevent it from being, uh, sorry, major histability class one. It has a protein that grabbed that off the cell surface, so a T cell maybe can't see it. It has a, uh, actually the same protein grabs an NK cell detector uh, off the cell surface, and then it down pulls the TNF receptors off the cell surface, and then it blocks apoptosis. So the way you kill it is either you neutralize it with antibodies, or if it gets in a cell, uh, it's usually a CD8 T cell uh, kill. Is there any role for attenuated adenovirus in killing? I, mean, it's, you know, I think the attenuated virus can be used for vaccine work. Yeah. You know, if they just wondering whether, um, when, when, when I use the word attenuated, does that mean non-replicating or limited replication? Yeah, well, actually, I didn't, uh, didn't. I sort of fudged on the details, but the data where I was showing the uh, uh, this, these are actually attenuated. So they're ones we engineered called single-cycle adenoviruses. So they go in and they replicate their DNA. They will kill that cell, but they can't make progeny infectious viruses. And so the so, so the answer is. It makes it a pretty powerful tool, doesn't it, for going after cancer or if you can target it here? Yeah. So actually, that's uh, some of the stuff we're working on. And um, I, when I give a single cycle talk, it's usually in the context of vaccination against infectious mm -hmm. diseases. But this stuff actually spun out of the wedding of, you know, we're trying to make a vaccine against like HIV and Zika. And we developed those viruses for that. And it was like, hey, well, could we do anything with cancer with this? And so that's actually where that came from. So thank you. Is there another? So Mike, you keep manipulating mice, trying to improve on the situation, get a better therapy for mice. What point in time do you decide you should be doing this in humans? Yeah. What would you put in humans? Well, actually, I would put, um, I didn't talk about it, but when we uh, looked at I mentioned we looked at all these different viruses, um, the virome, the sort of palate. So we looked at all these viruses and we looked at a bunch of cancers and the one that's actually best against prostate cancer is not AD5, the archetype, it's actually one of his family members called AD6. So this guy is hungry for prostate cancer. And we've actually proposed this in our prostate spore and it didn't get renewed. So, and, and so the problem at Mayo is actually there's too many viruses laying around because right now, like, measles virus is infesting everything. So, like, if I go say, I want to work on glioma, it's like, well, let's wait and see what happens with measles virus. So the pipeline's kind of tight. I thought you went there because Steve Russell was there, and now you're telling me he's in your way? I was actually recruited as a vaccine guy, uh, and I happened to do cancer, uh, so, yeah. Do you use any of those viruses to drop tumor suppressors into the 
cancer instead of using the direct killing method? Could, and people have tried doing that. Um, if, I don't know if you've taken Alan's cancer biology class, but uh, <laughs> well, the problem the problem with cisplatin, the problem with R virus, uh, problem with uh, you know CRISPR microRNAs or whatever is. You, you do well of every cell you hit, but everybody you miss is going to come back and regrow, and they might even be resistant. So that's the same thing true with our virus. We weren't going to hit everybody. So that's actually why I like the, you know, the immune system as a kind of to help maybe hopefully mop up everybody we missed. If, if we can you know, sort of raise a ruckus in the tumor, cause an immune response, maybe it'll help clean up what we didn't get in the first place. He could. It's actually one of the, the difficulties in uh, uh, doing making these viruses, or if we put something really potent in the virus, or we put like a, a, a pathogen protein. A lot of these are, you know, either as a by design or by uh, side effect are noxious to mammalian cells. So we depend on mammalian cells to make our virus for us. So the hardest ones to rescue are actually the ones that are encoding really potent noxious proteins. So we actually have to repress those proteins while we rescue the virus in order to get to the end, and then we can let them, let them loose. But, yeah, you could. Um, you know, there's also the balance to be taken, very careful balance of not making a virus that will reenact uh, I Am Legend <laughs> so you don't want to, you know, so like the, the Dr. Weira had mentioned the attenuated thing, one of the slides I have is, you know, well, what if I go into a, a cancer patient whose immune system has been, you know, pounded by pr prior therapy, and I give them this super fit virus, you know, I might kill them with the, my virus, not with the cancer. So like the single cycle thing, part of the sales pitch of that is it'll go in, it'll amplify, it'll raise a ruckus, but it won't, you know, it can't keep going. So, but yeah, you could. Well, thank you, Mike. Constantine has one last question. Could I turn out the lights again? Okay. <laughs> With other viruses naturally having tropism for the lung, is anybody working with inhalation or targeting only the rather than the prostate like me or... Yeah, well, so, yeah, that's no, a good question. Actually, you know, every, so it started out adenovirus and gene therapy, and really if you take all the viruses or non-viral things, if you want to put genes into the body in vivo, nobody touches adenovirus right now. It's super potent, and it was originally developed to treat cystic fibrosis. It made great sense. It's a lung virus. We'll go treat this mostly lung disease, and... Everything in gene therapy is, there's a Murphy's Law associated with it. So if you go in and you give an adenovirus in the lung and you look for which cells does it infect, it infects the heck out of the lung, but it infects the cells right next to the ones you actually need to put the gene into. So, um, so yeah, lung is actually a, a good target, and it's kind of ironic that uh, it's not been pushed very strongly. We've done a little studies uh, in mice with A549 tumors, and... It works. Um, thank you.